and welcome to Bite Me, a new Buffy podcast hosted by me, Martin, and my good friend, Joe Ford. Joe, how are you doing? I am doing wonderfully. I'm about to embark on an adventure of a lifetime, talking about one of my favourite TV shows of you. I'm wonderful, thank you. Yeah, good. It's a new day, it's a new podcast, and it's one I'm surprised I haven't done before, because Buffy, Buffy's my Doctor Who. I didn't grow up with Doctor Who, but I was 16 when Buffy started, and I was 23 when it finished. So I was the, the exact same age as the characters in the show. So I progressed with them. I started college when they did. I left school. Well, actually, no, they left school at 18. So I was a little bit <laughs> a little bit ahead of them. But yeah, I, I just love Buffy. And whenever anyone mentions the master, my first thought is Buffy. It's never Doctor ah. Who. <laughs> so you think, you think about Metcalf, not only. Yeah, exactly. So how did you discover Buffy? So I came into Buffy when, now don't get me wrong, I really love the first season and a half of Buffy, but I think where it went from being a good show to being a great show was the two-parter in the middle of season two, where, spoilers, Angel turns bad, right? And that episode went out, and everyone was talking about it. I hadn't even, this show was called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for God's <laughs> sakes. I wasn't going to watch that shit. It sounded like some terrible old B-movie. And then I, I watched, that That was repeated that week, and I watched it, and I was like, bloody hell, this is good. Then I caught the second episode, the one with the judge and her with the yeah, bazooka yeah. in the mall and all of that. I'm like, this is the best TV I've ever seen. It actually, for me somebody who was sort of in the process of studying television at the time, I was like, this is a new dawn for television. Mm. Yeah, we're doing something that has never been done this well before. And then I watched that second half of the second series, which is still one of my favourite run of episodes. And that was it. It got it hooked into me. Then I loved the characters. They broke my heart on a regular basis. Alison Hannigan, you need to pay for my therapy because you took me to some <laughs> very dark places in those last few years. No, no. I, my, and my biggest in for any television show is always the characters. It's mm. never really the concepts. And if the characters get their hooks into me, I'll go on the ride no matter how good bad or indifferent the storytelling is fortunately the storytelling was frequently excellent as well yeah yeah i didn't discover it until series two actually i had heard it was on but i had seen the 1992 movie and i remember thinking why the fuck are they making a tv series of this shit film (laughs) but what i didn't realize is the first series is based on the original screenplay is that right yeah so what happened is joss whedon wrote the film and then it got butchered by producers and editors. And obviously it was he, his first project. So, and there's two people involved with Buffy. There's two producers. I can't remember their names off the top of my head. But they've got nothing to do with the TV series. They've got nothing to do with Angel. But they get a check every time an episode plays because they brought the movie rights. Oh, well, and that was a savvy move. Wasn't yeah, it? they are the people that stopped there being a Giles spinoff. No, what yeah. the, the British Charles spin-off they were going to do over here. Yeah, like the BBC had costed it, they'd budgeted it, they'd cast it, they'd built sets, and then these two producers from the film wanted an extra like 10 grand. And oh, the BBC were like, we can't, those people. We can't pay Excuse that. Excuse my language. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of understand it. Like if you own this property that you think is, you know, is viable, why wouldn't you try and get all you can get for it? But a Giles spin-off I would have loved. 
Well, and I'm sure you and I will talk about Angel in good in due course. And I'm wondering if eventually we'll just skip over and do the two alongside each other. But I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> uh, I'll say up front, I didn't have the same reaction to Angel as I did to Buffy, mm. uh, which is unusual because I'm a massive Star Trek fan. And when Star Trek spun off into a darker, <laughs> more sort of twisted version in DS9, I adored it. When they did Angel, which did feel like a more grounded, mm. less sort of supernaturally and quite raw series, I, I sort of pushed against it a bit. I'll be really interested to go back and watch that now, though, given the, the wealth of television that's come since and to see... <laughs> what that's got to offer. I'm wondering if I might quite like it now. I'm surprised it wasn't more spin-offs because this was a phenomenon, wasn't it? Like this, Initially, I think people were a bit sceptical. Then people got on board and mm. then come sort of series three, four and five, this was the hottest property, I think, coming out of WV. There was going to be a faith one at one point, but then Eliza Dusku oh. turned it down to do True Calling, which lasted one series. And then there was going to be a Spike movie, but they just couldn't get the budget sorted out. And now the cast have all kind of aged out of it. I guess the only reason, the only way you could really do it now is a complete reboot. Or, I don't know, you bring in a new Slayer and you have the original characters pop up. But given what's come out about Joss Whedon being a bit of a bully and a bit of a prick recently, I doubt that's ever going to happen. But saying that, Disney do own the TV rights. So something is going to happen with it at some point. What's strange about Buffy, I think, is given how, and I genuinely think, and we'll discuss this as we go through the episodes, it revolutionised television in a lot of different ways. Oh, absolutely. Uh, is how now it isn't really spoken about too much alongside sort of the greats of the past. When And I think like the X-Files gets tarred with that brush as well. Mm. The X-Files, when it was on, was the biggest show on television. Now people sort of look back on it and it's a, a bit of an embarrassment that ran on a bit too long. <laughs> but I think it's worth remembering that when yeah. this show was on, it was on everybody's lips. This was like the water cooler show. I think they they redefined the the cliffhanger on everybody's lips that you talked about for the week until the next one. And I'm talking about cliffhangers like Angel getting his soul back, or that one where Giles turns up towards the end of series six and yes. pushes Willow aside with the magic and stuff like that, where we were all like, "My God, I cannot wait until the next episode." Yeah, this was a phenomenon. Without Buffy, you don't get The Sopranos. Because mm. I think Buffy showed what TV could be when it was well-written and you had well-rounded characters. It kind of reminds me how, you know, Blade came along and showed what comic book movies could be. And then the X-Men did it. And now all anyone remembers is the X-Men is responsible for what we have now. And a lot of people just remember what The Sopranos did. I think, I think that's a very similar path that these, these two franchises have gone down. I wanted to be Angel so badly when I was like 17. I used to, the reason I've got no hair now is probably all the product I used to put in it. I used to like just, oh, what an insufferable prick. I used to sit in the dark because he did. I used to just not say anything. I used to not smile. I had the leather coat because I thought this is what girls like. Do you know who I wanted to be? Yeah, go on. I wanted to be Xander so badly, the goofy, 
funny psychic and you know in the sort of later seasons where he suddenly becomes very eloquent mm. about his feelings and sort of very empathic to the people around him just for the entire run i just i was a massive nicholas brendan span and i'm sorry you are gonna have to put up with me because this has got some of the hottest men i've ever seen on television <laughs> so you are gonna have to put up with me admiring them quite a lot and nicholas brendan in series one and two man that was a big crush at the time I'll bet. perfect age for me those sort of floppy curtains that every boy band had in the 90s yeah Oh boy. He's a good looking man, but he's not I know Ryan Reynolds auditioned and I think Ryan Reynolds is a bit too Hollywood good looking. Whereas Nicholas Brendan and I mean this as a compliment, he's everyday handsome. So yeah. like you could imagine him working in a shop. You wouldn't be surprised if you went in a shop and there was a guy that looked like him there. But if you went in a shop and there's a guy that looked like Ryan Reynolds, you'd be like, mate, you shouldn't be in it. I mean, in the same breath, I will say that you do have Sarah Michelle Gellar, Alison Hannigan, Elijah Dushku. <laughs> I could go on. You've got some of the most stunningly beautiful women oh. that television ever gave us. What I thought was really bold with some of this casting, especially with Nicholas Brendan and David Boreanaz, is they were relative unknowns. Yeah. They've done very little work. So there was every chance that those that acting could have bombed. And actually what they did was create fantastically memorable characters and delivered time and time again. I mean, they gave Boreanaz his own show yeah. about three times over. <laughs> He's consistently worked since. Like, there isn't a gap in his IMDb. Like, he went from Buffy to Angel to Bones, and now I think he's in an SAS-type Navy SEAL show that's been going for, like, six years. Like he, and do you know what? He makes me sick. He's, like, 50 now, and he's still hot as hell. He, yeah. yeah, it kind of annoys me as well. He could still play Angel, <laughs> I reckon. Yeah, he could. Give him the leather jacket. Yeah. Do you know what I think the biggest surprise is, though, in Buffy? And I can't wait to look at her journey. That's Alison Hannigan. Because mm. this show is called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but for me, it's Willow's journey that really affected me in this run. Yeah. And I, that surprises me knowing that she went off to do movies, that they grabbed her for a sitcom, you know, that she made a fortune after she left Buffy because she's such a talent. Yeah, a lot of people from Buffy have done really well. There's very few people in it that you're like, yeah, this is your biggest thing. I mean, Nicholas I think, Brendan, I think he's... Brendan went to prison a few times. He, yeah, he's <laughs> had his demons. Yeah, well, uh, don't we all? Yeah, don't I, wish all. It, I wish him all the best. Like, I hope he gets clean and sorts himself out but yeah like if you if i showed a picture of david boreanaz to my mum, she would know him from bones and right. i think that yeah. that's the big tell that he's not defined by buffy or angel and what both shows did really well is character evolution so i hated mm. wesley on buffy i thought wesley was just this sniveling little fucking prick and i, I nothing to do with him i hated him but where he ends in Angel is so far removed from where he starts that you're like, yeah, I love this character. I love this evolution. How do you feel about I that? I say it, but even he was really hot at the end. They <laughs> gave him a bit of scruff, didn't they? Yeah, Suddenly yeah. He, he knew all the kung fu moves like everybody else. He was going to the gym. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the only character in the entire run of Buffy and Angel, there's two characters that didn't really gel for me. One was Riley. Hmm. Buffy's boyfriend in series four and I felt like that was a missed opportunity that it could have worked really well but something didn't stick with the writing and the performance and the other one is Connor from Angel's yeah. son who well, they just cast somebody very terrible but in the role but never mind I, but, I think he know, was inexperienced because he's gone on to actually be a really good actor now Connor 
Uh, he's in Mad Men, and he's re- he's really good in Mad Men. He plays a like an advertising kind of boss. And maybe it was the writing then. Well, maybe, maybe it was just the wrong time. Maybe, I think he sure. he was like seventeen at the time, so maybe just inexperience. But like, I think another thing Buffy absolutely mastered was the secondary characters, like Joyce Summers, who was just a delight. Oh. And I'm going to talk about what happens with her in series five until we get there. But oh. Joss Whedon truly broke my heart there. And, and characters like Harmony, you mm. know, who's so funny. And then in the later years, do you remember Clem with the, yeah, the I funky love ears? You know, like they just got all of that so, so right. And I feel like it's the first show that I watched that was as sort of emotionally introspective mm. as it is. And I think that was a massive strength. I do think in season six, which is actually one of my favorites for a lot of reasons, I think it went a bit too far and there was a bit too much therapy going on that year and got in the way of the storytelling a little bit. But on the whole, sort of how they probe these characters psychologically throughout the run. And I'm making it sound dry as dust there. The biggest strength for Buffy is the humour. I think it's just such a funny show. It's got fast and witty dialogue. It's got great character humour. It's got... They they do all those wonderful scenes all the time with two sort of culturally different characters Mm. going at each other. The vampire and the human or something like that. You know, the popular girl and the unpopular girl. And all this stuff, all these clashes are so funny when they do it. I just just think it is such a, a genuinely funny genre tv show and i know other shows that have tried to be funny <laughs> and sort of bomb i mean do you ever watch charmed which is kind of doing the same thing but it's a bit straight laced and a bit too i don't know what the right word is bland maybe that's the right word yeah i never got into charms but interestingly my 11 year old daughter has just started watching it and she loves it and i keep telling oh, her you need to watch buffy I've never been an 11 year old girl, so I can't possibly criticize yeah. there then. But yeah, she loves it. Have you ever delved into the expanded media like the comics? Not at all. And this is the other thing I'm looking forward to doing mm. as we go, because I know there is a, there's a lot of post season seven, there is, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Tell me about it then. I think they go on till series 12 in the comics. Dawn becomes a giant, Buffy becomes gay. And it get, it gets a bit convoluted. And now with Boom Studios, they've done a complete reboot. It's set in modern times. They used like the actors' appearances from the from the show in the comics. So it's kind of weird seeing Buffy hold an iPhone. Uh, right. <laughs> but once you get around that, it's a really interesting storytelling device. And Angel's got his own range, and they they change the characters. So like Anya's always been the magic shop owner. Willow's gay from the get go, and she's got a girlfriend. Giles is with Olivia, you know, that woman who would oh, come off the series of season four. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. he's with her. Jenny Callender's there. Xander becomes a half vampire. Drusilla turns him, but he doesn't feed on humans. So he's kind of like this, this half vampire. So they effectively rewrote the show. Yeah, yeah. But they, they do it really well. And like Principal Wood is a teenager now with them. And he's, oh, work, wow. he's working for the Watchers Council, trying to get information on Giles and Buffy. And it's a really interesting modern twist on how it goes. Yeah, but they also, have, they also have comics set in the future of that continuity where Buffy's the last vampire slayer and it's her and Spike taking down all the, all the remaining vampires. And that's quite interesting as well. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Doctor Who. You remember Doctor Who when it came off yeah. the air in 89 and the fans just wouldn't let it go? 
clearly the Buffy fans are exactly the same as well. You know, they're creative people and they've and they're sort of driving the franchise on in different ways. I know there's been books as well. I bet there's that there's been other things they've explored too. Are there Buffy conventions? Oh yeah. Yeah, they do Buffy cons. I mean, there's a Spike book out next month. So oh, yeah, it's still goes. How could I forget about Spike? Oh, you're in for some trouble when he comes along, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> he might be my favourite character in the entire run. He could have handled his own spin-off. Oh, but easily, easily. And in fact, when he skipped over to Tortured, which is a Doctor Who spin-off, um, that was, I think, a big acknowledgement of how much mm. Buffy the influence Buffy had on the modernised Doctor Who that came back in 2005. Like, and, you know, Anthony Head as the villain in the school reunion and all of that. Just the way they tell the stories these days, the arcs, all of it. I think a lot of that owes its debt to Buffy. Oh, yeah. Even Russell T. Davis has been unspoken about this, that Buffy was a huge influence and that Angel was a huge influence on Torchwood. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. you can see that, can't you? Yeah, and there's you even episodes that are just straight-up rip-offs of Angel and Torchwood. But also as well, I think if you look across the run of Buffy, the best episodes, and that's a contentious subject because it's subjective, isn't it, what you think is the best episodes, but like some of, some of the accepted best episodes, Once More With Feeling, The Body, The Gift, you know, things like that. I don't think you'd disagree with me to say that that is some of the best television we've ever had. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's up there Um, with like Breaking Bad. It's up there with The Sopranos. And I don't think we, like I said earlier, I don't think we get any of those shows now, any of that storytelling narrative without Buffy. And I don't don't think we get it with the consistency that Buffy churned it out either. But a a weak Buffy episode is better than most average TV shows that are are being churned out these days. I would quite like to touch on very, just really briefly, the Joss Whedon thing. Because obviously we're going to talk about him a lot because he's, you know, he's stamped all over this show. I in no way endorse any kind of workplace bullying. And if that was going on, then that is troubling and it should be dealt with. What I will say about Joss Whedon is he is an extremely talented man and he brought all of his talents to this show and created some magic. And so I'm very much going to be separating what he's been accused of and the output that we're going to be critiquing. Because I don't think I don't think you and I could do this podcast if if we were sort of delving into that all the time. It yeah. would be a bit worrying. We'll touch on it when it's relevant, but yeah, I think we should separate art from artist here. He did create a lot of a lot of great work, and yeah, I don't I don't agree with workplace bullying. I'd be interested because he's he's never really given his side of it. I'd be interested to hear his side and how much of it was just that was the culture of TV at the time. I mean, when I interviewed Tom Lenk, he said there was a number of people on the set that he didn't feel like he could come out to. And they were like, oh, wow. they were like people that worked on like lighting or, or stuff like that because he didn't feel safe to. I'd be interested to know how much of that is just, it was that period in television. But then again, Ray Fisher made some allegations about the Justice League in 2017. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. maybe it's still going on, but until well, we get Joss. I think it's a, it's a troubling industry. You know, <laughs> I think if you are a creative person, there is a temperament there that goes with it. And you, you're all enclosed in a set together and sometimes things go wrong. And I bet, you know, we, we know from Doctor Who and other shows that, that uh, there could be toxic environments. Mm. It happens. It shouldn't, 
but it does. Yeah. You did remind me then, though, how could I possibly forget Andrew, who's one of the best <laughs> characters of the later seasons, yeah. who came in, and I was so unimpressed in his first couple of episodes, going, oh, God, he's a stereotypical geek. Are we really doing this? Are these really the villains? And then he just... they. They just had a way of taking like stereotypes, mm. subverting them, and then turning them into amazing characters. One of my favorite Buffy episodes is the Storyteller in season seven, yes. which is Andrew's episode. It's uh, amazing. Is that Jonathan? Oh no, Andrew. Andrew, yes, yeah, yes, Tom yes, yes, Andrew. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's brilliant. Oh no, I think Jonathan is brilliant throughout. Yeah. I think they captured that sort of uh, picked upon mousy school kid just brilliantly. Well, he auditioned to be Xander. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, I, I could kind of see it. I think Xander would have been done after the first series then, if they played him. I could see him working for like a series. Can I ask you a question? Because I believe that you've watched the unaired pilot. I have, week. yeah. I watched it last night. So could you please inform me then? Because uh, I saw it a long time ago. All I remember was the, the Willow was different, mm. very different. But I don't remember much else about it. It just it was basically like a, a showreel version of the pilot. Yeah, so Joss Whedon funded it himself and he filmed it on the on a camcorder, which is very evident. Uh, there's a different <laughs> Willow and a different Principal Flutie. Principal Flutie in this is played by Stephen Tobolsky, I think is his name. He's Ned Ryerson and Groundhog Day. So he's oh, the one that goes, Oh, it's a doozy. And he's playing it a bit more comedically in, in the pilot. But the essence of the first episode is there. There's no angel, there's no master, but the, the essence is there. It's a bit more self-referential. There's um, a Nosferatu poster up that the film club are putting up and then Buffy throws a steak for it. It's like a nearly done cake. Like it's nearly well, it, there. It, it's no wonder that that first episode is as strong as it is because it's basically had two runs. He's had two, two yeah. sort of attempts before creating welcome to the Hellmouth. so no wonder it's as polished as it is fox were very against the title and they what, buffy the vampire yeah swear. they begged him to change it because they thought it was, so was i i didn't give yeah. it a chance for a season off on the strength of the title same well it, it's because of the association for the with the film for me i was like mm. this can't be good and then i learned it was by the same writer and i, I didn't know how producers and stuff changed films back then so i was just like it's gonna be shit <laughs> well, do you know what I did? I did like in that movie though was uh, Donald Sutherland. Yes, I thought he was great. Going back and watching it, there's kind of like this camp kind yeah. of fun value to it, and the way Paul Rubens dies, it's it's kind of funny, <laughs> very over the top. We're yeah, used to that sort of thing you and me. I I like it now, but at the time when I was a cool little teenager trying to be edgy, it wasn't the film for me. As a blueprint for the series. I think it sort of fails completely. And I know it was never intended to be because I feel like the series is character first with the movie is like being cool first, mm. but in that spectacular sort of early 90s way that's just not cool at all. <laughs> you know, it's a bit embarrassing to watch, but it is, it's sort of like a whole classic now, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of a soft prequel to the series. There's elements they take, like she doesn't burn down the gym in the movie. So oh, I guess okay. that was a later <laughs> a later adventure. Let's call it a curiosity. Okay, Joe, now we've given the audience our Buffy bona fides, why don't we just jump straight into Welcome to the Hellmouth. In a town where darkness hides its face, a slayer rises, embracing her destined grace. 
Buffy Summers, young and bold, her calling's power she'll fiercely hold. Sunnydale, a quaint facade, beneath it lies a world that's flawed. Vampires lurk and demons dwell, but Buffy's strength will break their spell. Arriving at a new school's door, she seeks solace and nothing more. But destiny calls, she can't evade. A watcher's guidance, a bond was made. Together they stand, facing the night, fighting evil with all their might. With friends by her side, united they stand. In the battle against darkness, they'll withstand. In every dusk and every dawn, the Slayer's courage will be drawn. The first episode sets the stage for Buffy's journey, a timeless page. You didn't discover this until series two. I was the same. So when I, when I went back, a lot of twists in this episode I already knew. So yeah. how did you find this episode when you first saw it? I thought this was really confident. And actually, I think, apart from the finale and Angel, I think this might be the strongest episode of the season, mm. the first episode. Like, it just hits the ground running. It's so confident. A lot of shows take about two seasons yeah. to get halfway this confident. Whereas Buffy just knows what he's doing right from the off. Yeah, I think yeah, having I having his experiences on the film and then making that pre-pilot really helped Joss Whedon narrow down what he wanted to do with the series. Shall we talk casting? Let's talk casting. Yeah. Who do you want to talk about first? So Sarah Michelle Gellar originally auditioned to be Cordelia. Yeah, I learned that yesterday. I can't. I just can't see it somehow. I mean, she'd be great. Because she's mm. a great actress, and I've seen her in stuff like Cruel Intentions, yeah. where she plays the bitch brilliantly. But can you imagine anyone else playing Buffy the Vampire Slayer now? No. Well, Katie Holmes very nearly got the job. Really? Yeah, she, oh, no. she was like the network's top choice. But then they found out she was only 17. Right. So as she was a minor, she couldn't work nights, and there were a limited number of hours she could work. So they were like, it's just too complex. And then I think a year later, she hit 18 and got Dawson's Creek. So it turned out pretty well, she, well for her. She went on to have a spectacular yeah. success with. So things, things worked out well for her. Do you know, the thing I hear people say about Sarah Michelle Gellar the most, and that's Alison Hannigan, Joss Whedon, all the people that worked for her all those years, was how hard she worked, yeah. how well prepared she was, how she was on the set the longest, how she never complained once. Like she sounds like a the the, the quintessential professional. Yeah. But alongside that, she's just a bloody good actress as well and did a, like astonishing things with this part. So I think that they found the right fit with Sarah Michelle Geller. Oh absolutely. Absolutely. I think she was 21, 22 when she did this. Surprisingly I learned <laughs> Uh, Charisma Carpenter was 26. Oh, really? Yeah, when she was cast she was as Cordelia. younger than that. Have you seen much of Sarah Michelle Gellar's other work? Yeah, Scooby-Doo. Um, oh. Yeah, Cruel Intentions. <laughs> Cruel Intentions. When I was 17, I watched a certain scene on DVD over and over and over. There was this period in the 90s, though, where she was everywhere, right? Mm. Do you remember? I know what you did last summer yeah. and stuff like that. You know, she was in all the sort of the, the chick flicks. And... I've said, what was that show that she did where she was in? She was the twins that ran that ran for two years. Was it All My Children? It was called hmm? All My Children. She was in the soap opera. Maybe no, no, no. There was there was this sort of weird twisted where she had a doppelganger, and it all got. It was a very weird drama. Oh, um, do you know which one I'm talking about? Yes, and she also played Robin Williams's daughter in something. Yeah, and she was also in the Burger King commercials when she was a little girl and as cute as a button, may I say. 
So, no, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, okay, I'll say from the off, I don't think anyone is miscast in this show, but I think the best casting they ever did was Sarah Michelle Gellar. Absolutely. Was... Absolutely. So, Joss Whedon said when he was writing the character of Angel that he knew this was going to be a character that could go on to have his own show or a character that could disappear within seven episodes. And he said it Can all you? depended on who they cast. And the casting agent has gone on record as saying it was the hardest casting she's ever had because you had to hire this guy who was good looking, but not good. So good looking men didn't like him. And then, yeah. yeah and she was basically driving home one day thinking how impossible it was. And she stumbled across David Boreanaz walking his dog. I hear that Joss Whedon needed convincing about mm. David Boreanaz, and there were several people in the room, several ladies, that basically started perspiring the second he walked <laughs> in, and they went, well, you're casting him. It's got to be him. He's mm. hot as hell. I think Boreanaz has an element of vulnerability about him yeah. that he brings to the role, which is essential to Angel. I've actually been fairly critical of him in the past. Mm. Certainly, I've reviewed all of Buffy on one of my websites and i didn't really rate him at the time as i was watching this for this podcast i'm like what were you talking about joe he's really great like <laughs> he somehow manages to be unassuming mm. and have presence at the same time and that's a fine line to walk yeah yeah and he is a character that you are intrigued by him you're like how does he know these vampires what's the story darla i had a huge crush on julie benz when I when I first watched this, oh, I, mean, I can't I can't break away from Julie Benz in Dexter. Yeah, when she was in Dexter as as this Rita. lovely sort of she was in an abusive relationship and then Dexter ended up in a and then she got murdered horribly in season five. Every time I see her in Buffy now, I'm like, oh no! Remember when she was dead <laughs> in the bath in yeah. Dexter? She was so good. She at is that. great. I mean, that's how they do the premise of the show in this, isn't it? It's her at the beginning in the corridor turning into a vampire. The innocent girl that's about to be preyed upon, preying upon the person. Great. Well, yeah, it was Joss Whedon's entire premise for Buffy was to subvert the old horror genres. So normally mm. you'd have the, the blonde girl who's going in there and she gets attacked. And his idea was, what if she turned around and beat the shit out of the monsters? <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? And yeah. Do you remember the bit in Angel where she had the machine gun and the, they were strobe lighting her and she was like, <laughs> just blowing the shit out of that room? Yeah. Oh, I think I had a crush on her at that point. <laughs> it's interesting to see Xander skateboard in this episode. Mm, I don't think we ever see that again. We don't. He carries it. But yeah, he was meant to skateboard in every episode. However, the logistics of filming someone skateboard across a path wow. with extras in the background and different camera angles and resetting it, it was just deemed too much work. It's a tracking shot in this one, isn't it? Yeah. I remember. Maybe that's just too expensive. The thing I gleaned from the commentary was that this was done on the cheap and they had to do a lot of pickups later on. They were doing this in a, in a hurry with not much money. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah, the scene what... with Buffy and Giles in the library, that was shot at the same time as the finale. Mm. Yeah, they yeah. went back. And I knew that. So when I was watching it, I was like, how do they marry these scenes up with what they've already shot? Because there's some bits that they've already shot and there's some bits they've shot later. Actually, it's it's peerless. You can't really tell. Yeah, you can't tell. Yeah. Did you know who Anthony Stewart Head was at the time? He was big for like the Kenko coffee adverts. I did. My mum was a huge fan of those adverts, you know. I think she 
she was more excited about the adverts than she was about Corey because they usually aired when Coronation Street was on, yeah. which is a British soap for anybody that doesn't know, a very long running one. Oh, have you gone back and watched those adverts now, though? No, no, I've never really Oh, bugger me, Martin. It's like watching 60s Star Trek. They've got this sort of fuzzy <laughs> lens on the woman and they're sort of giving each other moon eyes over the Kenko or whatever it is. It's, oh, it's just interminable. I remember him from the pilot episode of Jonathan Creek when he played Adam Klaus. Sure. And thinking, wow, he's this this is a this is a memorable actor. And then they recast him, obviously, when he came over to do Buffy almost immediately after he did that, um, for Stuart Milligan. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I watched Buffy. I was like, oh, that's what he went to do. Oh. Actually he got a better gig. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. This is one of the strongest first episodes of any TV mm. series. And it's hard to say that because episode one is never normally anyone's favorite episode of anything because that's that's the setup, that's the premise. We've we've got to be introduced to all of those key players uh, in a way that doesn't feel sort of functional, you know. So having her come to a new school gives us a way of we're following her. It's a day in the life of Buffy Summers at Sunnydale High for the first day. So we get to meet the principal. We get to meet, you know, the school bully. We get to meet all of the the friends to be. We get to meet the librarian. It's it's very well done in that respect. That's a good approach to take. Yeah, and interestingly, Joss Whedon didn't want to show her parents at all originally. No, I bet. Oh, I bet when Christine Sutherland came in, he's like, "No, we're gonna we're gonna write her up." No, he just decided it would be too awkward to just never have a parent present. So he decided that if he made the parents divorced, then you only had one parent to worry about. And that, that which, that's why which is a, bring, having her come from a broken home, that automatically puts our sympathies with Buffy, doesn't mm. it? But don't you just love how Joyce is written here? I, there's a very responsible take on the adults in this, because a, a lot of the time you find in kids or teen tv shows the parents are the ones that are just coming down hard on the kids all the time and we don't like them mm. the adults in buffy that's giles and that's joyce i find them very likable that was such a savvy move because it means we go on journeys with those characters as well as we go along and joyce being that person who's in the dark for like a season <laughs> what nearly two whole seasons of just going you know why are you coming home covered in blood you know <laughs> you're a very bad daughter then they get to do the reveal and then they do so many fun things of her after that so i think including buffy's mum while it initially might have appeared to be a bit like oh we're doing this are we you know the 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 annoying mum it just bared fruit down the line so much yeah and interestingly you only ever see willow's mum once is that in gingerbread is that the one where they try and burn her as a witch yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I remember. And I think yeah. Xander's parents show up once or twice. They're not in it a lot. We hear Xander's parents upstairs when mm. he's in the basement, like rowing all the time, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And he sort of goes, oh, come on, you. let's have sex and we'll drown him out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard to really be critical of this episode because I love kind of everything about it. But yeah, this is what I think of when I hear the word the master – I think of Metcalf. I, d- I don't think of Doctor Who. What do you think about his... Because he's the cliffhanger to this episode, isn't he? When yeah. he comes rising up out of the blood. I yeah. think that's the only CG shot in this. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, uh, Whedon was saying that he was supposed to come out covered in blood. They wanted it to be really sort of gothic and horrific. 
but unfortunately uh, and originally the studio were like well we'll do it we'll have him come out of of, out of blood and then they were like no what if this goes right we haven't got enough money to do it again if he looks stupid <laughs> we've got to use it so they did the the cgi shot but man what a villain mine what a yeah. villain i was always disappointed that you know jumping ahead that he's only a one series villain well that's the buffy way though isn't it yeah i Generally. suppose so i suppose the only so. person the only person that got more was spike yeah and that's just i think spike was cool yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> it's cool and hot. <laughs> I will keep reminding you of that. Do you like Principal Flutie? Oh, I really like Principal Flutie. And obviously they replace him with the, the fabulous Armin Schumann as yeah. the evil Principal <laughs> Snyder, who I think is a more memorable character just because he's such an arsehole. But don't you just love Flutie like, straight away? Oh, it's it. Buffy at Sunnydale. I believe in second chances. And he tears up her record. I just love that, that he just catches, catches a glimpse of it on the corner of his eye and he's like, burnt down. And he starts just taping it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I can't believe what they do to him later in this season. Yeah. That was the first time when I was like, yeah, this is a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Alison Hannigan here. She's... This is a very stereotypical geek. What is she wearing? <laughs> <laughs> her mum picks it out for her, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah. But I, very quickly, she stops wearing that, yeah. that kind of stuff, doesn't she? She's in... It's quirky. It's a bit eccentric, her clothes, but it's, it is cool. You know, like the Buffy cool. Well, yeah, that's, that's Buffy's influence on her. And I... The way I read it is that Buffy's actively trying not to hang around with the popular kids anymore. She she yeah. had that life in LA and she doesn't want it anymore. And that turns out to be a very smart move going ahead. Yeah. Although I gotta say, I think the most memorable character in this is Cordelia. <laughs> like, uh, some of her lines in the pilot, what is it? Um excuse me, who even gave you permission to exist? You know, some of those lines are Yeah gold and charisma carpenter delivers them beautifully but that's why we feel for willow isn't it because she's just so fucking horrible to yeah. her all the time yeah cordelia's evolution is really good throughout both shows because she mm. later goes on to angel i don't really know much about her evolution in angel okay but certainly in buffy yeah. yeah i won't spoil it i won't spoil it okay so anthony stewart head here <laughs> i just love the way he plonks the book down on the counter is like yeah i know what you're after boom vampira why have you got the wrong student? Yeah. Oh, how embarrassing. Sorry. <laughs> I, mean, I think you wanted this textbook instead. And I think this episode is the only time we see him in the bronze. It could be, actually, yeah. I, I don't remember too many other times of him being in the bronze. What I do really like is the chemistry between Anthony Stewart Head and Sarah Michelle Gellar. And I think that's one of the major strengths of the show. Like, and that, that sort of immediate respect that they have for each other. And then that's all, he's almost like a surrogate dad figure for her, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And there's just something so assuring about Anthony Stewart. I don't know what it is. And he's got a vulnerable side to him as well. But I just like, no, if he was around, if Giles was around, it's going to be all right. Yeah. yeah, it's when he leaves in series six. That's when the shit all hits the fan, isn't it? And everyone's lies falls apart. That's true. We haven't mentioned Jesse. No, who's that again? Oh yeah, the fellow <laughs> who dies. Joss Whedon's initial plan was to have Jesse in the opening credits and to put him on all the promo material so that viewers would be really shocked when he died. 
But as I saw series two first and then came back to series one and he wasn't mentioned, I knew straight away he was going to die. But it was deemed, yeah, too expensive to put him in all that promo stuff. But Rossity Davis would later do this with Torchwood with Susie. Of course he Susie's did, yeah. in all those and trailers. They're, they're very naughty because they do it with Amber Benson. Yeah. She gets one episode where she gets a, a credit in the title and then they murder her at the end. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then you get fucking Kennedy coming in thinking she can replace her. Oh, oh. spoiler <laughs> for about five years down the line of this podcast. <laughs> what are the best moments in this episode for you? Like, What, what are your standout scenes in Welcome to the Hellmouth? Oh, I think the master coming up through the blood that's really good i remember that looking really good it looks really ropey now especially if you watch it on disney plus where it's been like hd'd and you know filtered i love the moment when the vampira book comes flying down i love joyce my favorite standout moment is principal flutie retaping that that transcript back up together and there's deleted scenes from this episode where that he's more involved Oh no, why did they cut him out? What's he up to? I think it's just running time. No, it's like Buffy trying to get in to see the dead body before she goes in, sees him. And uh, he has a conversation about counselling and stuff like that with her. I think some of the standout scenes from Welcome to the Hellmouth feature possibly the scariest vampire we ever got in Brian Thompson. Oh, he's so good. Who, I don't know if you recall, he played the pilot in The X-Files, and that was my other big love of the 1990s. He was the alien shapeshifter that went round with the device, stabbing yeah. everyone in the back and um, bringing out this sort of acid blood. And man, he's scary. The the end of this, where he jumps down on Buffy, and there's like the, the freeze frame on his face. I don't think, because I don't think, I don't think Spike was ever scary. No, I think Angel was memorable, but I don't think he was scary in the horror sense. He was scary because he was murdering, you know, the cast, and that's that's really horrible. I don't think they really get the the villainous vampire right again after this. So it's actually a shame that he's written out in these two episodes. He's yeah. great. He's a really good character. If the actor comes back because he plays the judge in series two. Oh boy, does he! Mind yeah. you, he don't get to do a lot except get blown up, does he? <laughs> but oh, he's—I looked him up. He's an old guy because he's handsome, but also weird looking. Like, do you he, know? I always used to walk around my mall thinking, do you know what? My mall's never as exciting as that episode of Buffy <laughs> where she gets the bazooka and blows up the judge. Oh dear! I feel like Joss Whedon's got a tick list of things, you know, throughout that he really wants to do, and that was one of them. Oh, it's great. Yeah. As a pilot episode, do you think this, because I always consider the the success of a pilot is whether you want to go on and watch more episodes. Does this work on those terms for you? If you were just watching this blind, not going back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this does its job. There's very few pilots that I think are this strong. Being Humans, one, another vampire show. I mean, that's a very strong pilot. Yeah, I, I want to know more. I want to continue on this journey with these characters. And is this doing enough to subvert the genre? Because obviously it's putting the helpless damsel in the role of the hero. Is this doing enough to make it different from stuff that's come before? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We get Dala killing that boy. Let me ask you, Joe, have you ever gone on a date with someone and wanted to take them back to your old high school? My old high school, yeah. man, my room, all the time. <laughs> but my old high school, no. 
Because that's what makes me... If someone suggested that I go into a darkened building with them on a first date, (laughs) that would be an immediate (laughs) red flag, all right? Because, yeah, it's so weird that he takes Darla to his old school. I I guess he says there's a great view from the the gym roof that he wants to show her. So maybe you just get this really awe-inspiring landscape shot of Sunnydale. And that's another thing that's always tripped me up about Sunnydale is the geography. Like, it's a small town, but there's an airport. There's a university that's far enough away Buffy has to stay there and can't stay at home. But she gets home regularly. There's a castle. There's a beach that we only see twice. Yeah. There's a mansion. <laughs> There's and... a castle that yeah, we see yeah, once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do have that great line in that where they go, do you know, I've never noticed there's an enormous castle <laughs> in Sunnydale before. You know? <laughs> like... I get, maybe, that, maybe what the Hellmouth does is it kind of just shifts stuff around. And, yeah. and people don't notice because they're part of it. Maybe it's like, I get another RTD ref, kind of influence is that he took the Hellmouth and made it the rift in time and space. Mm. In Cardiff, that is just the Hellmouth. Yeah. Well, and Joss Whedon said uh, on the commentary that that was his catch-all explanation when he couldn't think of a good good reason for the monster of the week to be in it. It's like, oh, the, the Hellmouth opened and this popped out, you know. And that that's a good premise because yeah. it just constantly generates stories, you know. And then they have they have fun with it as well. That doesn't Giles say in one episode, oh, I think there's a there's a Hellmouth in Indonesia or something like yeah. that. We'll go over there next, you know. Okay, here's a question for you then. What do you think about how meta this show is? Because I feel like shows have touched upon breaking the fourth wall throughout the 60s 70s and 80s but in the 90s this is where this becomes the standard and i think buffy does it better than most other shows like do you mind the sort of knowing winks to the audience like that castle line oh no i love it i love it if you're if you're cheeky about something that you know is a cliche you get away with it what they call it hanging a lantern on it you know like we know you know this is a bit shit let's go on with the story yeah no i'm all for that i'm all for that and i'm gonna i'm as we go through this i'm gonna highlight some of the best examples of that today i think the the um the best visual gag they ever do in buffy is where in that episode where cordelia falls on the spike and then we cut to a funeral scene with everybody in you know, black gear, the swelling music, yeah. the cameras spanning around, and then it just goes to the side, and it's Buffy and Willow just happening to walk past the funeral. <laughs> going, oh, so Cordelia's going to be all right then? You know, like I mean, th- this those sort of gags, it's just brilliant. Oh, there's a great gag I... in in this episode that I love, and that's the two girls in the locker room just before they s- discover the body. They're talking like, "Oh, what kind of name is Buffy anyway?" Oh, hi, Aphrodisia. <laughs> um, do you know, did you notice how much value speed there was in this i yeah. mean i felt as if this was the closest that buffy the vampire slayer the tv series ever got to clueless <laughs> they're going oh pause neg you know yeah stuff like that they're, they were very uh, they, influenced on on the era they were in but they do tone that down i think the, yeah. the, there is always very sort of unique dialogue in buffy but I think Joss Whedon said, like, nobody could really understand what anyone was saying. So we made we made it so it was decipherable dialogue. Can we talk a little bit about the direction of this? Mm. Because uh, it's Charles Martin, isn't it? Yeah. Who directed, he already directed some X-Files before this. So he sort of earned his chops in genre television because that's a show with a big budget. 
the thing that I really thought he pulled off in this, because the thing that Joss Whedon doesn't stop going on about in the commentary is how they had no money and how they only had one corridor for the high school. And what Charles Martin manages to do in that with the the movement, the activity, the the camera angles to make it suggest like this was a big school and not just one tiny set. And throughout, like by all accounts, it's all filmed in a big warehouse mm. some somewhere. I don't know, it's California or somewhere. And you know the exterior of the bronze? Yeah. That's the warehouse yeah, yeah, it's yeah. filmed in. So they 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 had the door there into the bronze, which is basically just from the exterior of the warehouse into the set. But I mean, what a savvy thing. Because yeah. that absolutely suggests inside and outside. And throughout, if there was no money available for this pilot, I don't think it shows at all. Yeah, no, no. Direction is flawless. The production values are incredible for what it is. And the vampire makeup, it's, yeah. it still holds up. It's, it's very yeah. lost, boys. The only thing that improves, I think, is the dustings. Yeah. Did you know every dusting cost a million dollars? What? Yeah. At at that time, with CGI budgets and what it took, every dusting was a million dollars. That's why so often you'll see a stake to the side and you'll just hear the, the sound effect. And that was just to save money. But there's episodes where she dusts about five people. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it did become a big show and advertisers were attracted to it. So that helped when the budget went up. It'd probably be cheaper now. It'd just be an Adobe kind of filter that you put on, probably. But yeah, the dusting effect still holds up, still looks good. I, I think in terms of the direction, right, the scene that had to land was the first scene with Darla. That, mm. that, and that's the scene where you're watching it and you think you know how this is going. And I think the cut to her turning around with the vampire makeup is a, a great shock moment. You know, yeah. he gets that bang on. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a flawless episode. I mean, and that's almost a boring way to start this, right? By saying, well, this is perfect and that's perfect because I'll show you what, we've got iRobot UJ coming up and <laughs> Teacher's Pet and episodes like this where we can have a bit of fun poking at the less successful aspects of the episodes. Yeah. But, like, it's worth remembering this show started extremely well. Yeah, yeah, it did. I think that's about all we can say about Welcome to the Hellmouth is that we both liked it. In the second episode, which is The Harvest, is that right? Mm. Yeah, I always think of it as one. I always think of it as just Welcome to the Hellmouth for the two. I actually think the direction's even better in the second half because that's far more action-oriented, isn't it? There's a lot more going on. Yeah, well, this is very much the here's the characters, here's the location, here's the premise. Episode two is, right, we're going. I'm looking forward to getting to talk about The Harvest. What really happens by the end of The Harvest, and I don't think you can tell in this episode is by the end the regulars are all interacting as if they've known each like as if those actors have worked together for years and years whereas here we're getting the first sort of oh hi i'm buffy you know you don't have to hang around with all those sort of scenes by the end they're all talking in shorthand they're all cracking jokes together you know giles is signed to the camera saying we're all doomed and all of this um yeah i mean confident that's that's my one word for welcome to the Hellmouth. is that it just exudes confidence and it's not something that buffy ever loses i don't think what's surprising about this show is it was a mid-series replacement for another show that got cancelled what was that i can't remember off the top of my head i should have looked it up but that's why it's only 12 episodes it's oh i see they, because it would have been 20, yeah, 24 or whatever they, they, they needed to fill this 12 week slot 
So they, they greenlit Buffy and they were like, okay. And what's really, really funny to me is I heard Marty Noxon, who becomes a producer on series two, mm. she said to her mum, oh, I've got a great job. And the mum was like, oh, you know, what is it? And she said, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And her mum said, don't worry, dear, you'll do better next year. Oh, <laughs> and I've got to say, I really am looking forward to talking about Marty Noxon's involvement because yeah. she makes this show dark, like as dark as Dracula's underpants <laughs> at times. Seriously, if, you, if people think it's Joss Whedon that takes this show to dark places, it's, it's Noxon. And I do think having there's a cut, Jane Spencer comes in as well, doesn't she? Yeah fantastic script writer and uh, producer uh, having so many strong creative female voices in the show was a huge strength for buffy that's unusual for tv at the time as well yeah yeah joss whedon's whole approach was he he wanted to uh like elevate women in the industry i guess and i remember hearing an interview with him it was around the time the avengers came out someone asked him why do you keep writing strong female characters? And he said, because I keep getting asked that question. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's evident here. And it's not surprising to me that he wrote the best live action depiction of the Hulk, because I think you could draw parallels between Angel and Angelus and Bruce Banner and the Hulk. I watched um, Black Widow mm. recently. Okay. And that's a very female focused Marvel film. Yeah. And it really surprised me because even today, I think there are strong women in genre films and television, but it's not really the focus still, mm. you know. And if anything, Jodie Whittaker's Doctor Who has proven that we've still got a long way to go with yeah. a lot of people. I, I think because a lot of it is led by marketing, right? And marketing ruins everything. So a lot of marketing is buzzwords. It's we need diversity. We need this. But nobody actually focuses on just making a good, compelling character. That's what we need now moving forward with the end industry. We need somebody just to come along and write a good, compelling character. Remove all the buzzwords. Give us a strong, compelling character like Buffy and people will watch it. And the, the joy of this is we have strong, compelling female characters like yeah. Buffy and Cordelia and Willow and Anya and Dawn. You know, I mean, the list goes on and on. The, it, this show is doing it for women in a way that all shows should be bloody compelling, those characters, aren't they? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's all you need, really. I think it's to win over the sceptical part of the audience that are saying, oh, you know, female-centered shows no just create a really interesting show with really compelling characters i think that's how you, that's that's how you do it that's an obvious thing to say <laughs> and also it doesn't do strong female characters at the detriment to the male characters whereas a lot of no. a lot of shows that try and do a strong female they will have the male be a bumbling idiot but here yeah it every character is strong and compelling and every character is treated with the same reverence as any other character. And although it's called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it is an ensemble piece about all the characters. And we go on a journey with all the characters. And I think we need someone like Joss Whedon to come along now and, and yeah. do something great like this. Shake it up. With, with less bullying behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think you'd get away with that yeah. now. Um, but what's great is as well, I was going to say what's great, 
given what I'm about to say to you, you might not think it is great. <laughs> but there is such a, a huge amount of strong women in this show. We can kill them off as well and still have... Uh, so Jenny Callender, Joyce Summers, Tara... I don't think I'll ever forget those deaths. They're some of the most memorable television moments ever. And it isn't just the woman we kill. Like we said, Jesse in the first episode, like, you know, he he, he dies as well. But, um, yeah, just, just for putting a woman at the heart of this and capturing the imaginations of the entire television audience, well, I think Welcome to the Hellmouth has done a pretty good job. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Joe, I think that's where we'll leave it this week. Thanks for joining me and thanks for listening at home. We will be back next week when we talk about The Harvest. <laughs>